0: Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. We are one church that meets in various locations across Greater Manchester. For more information about who we are and where we meet, please visit ChristChurchManchester.com. Today our journey is going to take us into Acts 17 um, and we're going to delve into the significance of engaging with the culture around us. We're going to gain some hopefully valuable lessons. I'm kind of using quite strong intensifiers that might not hold up. Um, but we're going to learn some lessons from Paul's time in Athens and apply them to our interactions within this, own, this city that we're in, right? A diverse, beautiful city of Manchester. And I was working in town on Monday and decided to take a walk through town during my lunch break. And if you've visited the centre of town recently, you'll realise that Christmas is kind of in full swing. Um, you'll see the Christmas markets are up, you'll see the giant Santa has appeared outside um, the central library. It used to live outside the town hall, but it's been kicked out to the central library. And it kind of looms over the city. And then you'll see that people are singing um, not always well, trying to make some money off kind of their terrible renditions of various Christmas songs. I'm quite bitter about this, because last year my office was directly... um, had a window where directly outside was one of the busking spots um, all the way through the Christmas um, period. And I heard the same five songs on an endless loop, sung at varying degrees of quality um, by very different buskers. Um, you know, And one or two of them were great, but you can't hear jingle bells for the 800th and 92nd time and enjoy it. Um, but anyway, the city is bustling, people are shopping. Um, One of the things that I find quite funny in this city every single year is the queue of people queuing up to eat an entire Christmas dinner wrapped in a Yorkshire pudding. Um, It costs about 13 quid, and people queue for hours to get their entire Christmas dinner in a Yorkshire pudding. Or the other people who are queuing to buy an entire wheel of cheese that they would never buy at another time of the year, but suddenly we get to Christmas and people think someone else wants a wheel of cheese as a gift. There are people donning... There there we go. You are the target market for the wheel of cheese, and I'm glad I found someone. And you've got the people donning the Santa hats with the fake beards, raising money for various different charities. There's lots of life and things happening, and although the Christmas things are starting to happen, the other bits of city centre life continue, right? You've got your office workers trying to grab a sandwich over lunch. Um, You've got people meeting their friends for a coffee, Um, In a rare dry period on Monday, I saw some people walking their dogs, delivery drivers parked up on the street desperately trying to meet their quotas. Life is continuing. And then we've got the less happy and the less normal sides of our society, people struggling with poverty, unable to feed themselves, while all of the spending and extravagance of Christmas is going around alongside them. The complexities exist at all times of years. And we have a kind of reminder during that walk that actually all of these different people having all of their different activities exist in one place in one city at the same time. And that's the culture we're going to see when we look at the story of Paul in Athens, but it's also what we see every single day in our city. So I want us to hold those two things together. So... Andy did give me the whole of Acts 17 to speak on, um, but I'd like to focus in on the second half of the text. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to quickly walk us through the beginning half of the text, and then we'll focus in on the verses that look at Athens. So Paul, at the beginning of Acts 17, is accompanied by Silas on his second missionary journey, and they're working their way through Greece. We find them in Thessalonica, where Paul is preaching the gospel in the synagogues and finds some success amongst the Jews and Greeks, men and women. That then stirs some jealousy from leading Jews who feel like actually their congregations are being pulled away from them and they're evicted from the city. There is that gospel success from those different backgrounds, but trouble and opposition quickly follows. They then head to Beria, where again they begin in the synagogue and they receive a broadly positive reception. We get actually a very positive example for how we today can engage with teaching. It says that Jews in Beria turn to the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true, comparing the message they heard with what they knew would be coming through their words that they knew intimately and well. And that's always a good thing um, to do when we hear some teaching that we're not 100% sure about, go back to the scriptures and see if it lines up. And then Paul makes his way down to Athens. Athens was quite different to these other cities in that it was the center of Greek philosophy and it was very much a pagan city with less foundational knowledge of Scripture than he'd found in these other two places. We're going to focus in on Athens today. We're going to look at how Paul was able to understand and engage with their culture and contextualize the good news for them. you. Um, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. And he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He had a debate with some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things and we want to know what it's all about and then the best brackets I think we get in the Bible, it should be explained that all Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. What a brilliant bit of social commentary just shoved in there. Um, So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as followed. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way, for as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it. To an unknown God, this God, whom you are worshipping without knowing, is the one I am telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth he decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone, 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 everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in content, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's conversation with them, but some joined him and became believers. Among them, Dionysus, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So there's this incredible story of Paul engaging with the Athenians. And as is often our tradition here at CCM, I'm going to use a three-point structure. Um, We're going to look at contextualizing the gospel, proclaiming the gospel with boldness. And my third point which I do know, facing cultural challenges. So I want you to again picture something for me. This is a very picturing in your mind sermon, so if you're not very imaginative or creative, you're going to struggle, but I'll talk you through it. So we're up at Oxford Road, right? So if you know Manchester, you know that Oxford Road is our university zone in this city. So if you start at the top of Oxford Road, you start with Manchester Metropolitan Uni. You've got music students, drama students, fashion students, and many, many others. And you work your way down, you get to the University of Manchester. Maybe it's more known for its physics, its maths, that kind of thing. And in that little stretch of city, eighty to 90,000 people study every single day. Eighty to 90,000 people sharing ideas, learning something new. There's some laughing at the back, because I think they may have gone there and not studied every single day. Uh, but, you know, you had the opportunity to engage with the... Le- And we've got the future, maybe, of our country, our next doctors, designers, authors, engineers, architects, all of those learning, discovering, forming their ideas, right now, 20 minutes from here. I used to be at our Fallowfield congregation, that is something that matters very, very deeply to us. And Paul, in this text, is walking into a similar environment when he comes into Athens. He's coming into a city renowned for its history, ideas, and culture. Verse 18 talks about how he's getting into debate with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in the public square. Um, If you've ever Googled these things, it's really easy to oversimplify what they believe, but broadly, the Stoics believed in a philosophy where life should be lived with virtuous behavior, and the Epicureans had more of a focus on avoiding pain and enjoying life. They weren't deeply opposed, but they had very conflicting directions for which their life should be lived. And for over 300 years, they had been in Athens debating this. I love that they were so committed that generation after generation after generation had formed into a different camp to debate and develop their ideas. And many literary works and new ideas, even quotes that we still have in our language today, developed during this time of learning. And Paul enters this and he's disturbed, right? He's disturbed by the idol worship and the false teaching that he was witnessing. But instead of retreating and condemning, he chooses to engage with and attempt to find some mutual starting point that allows him to share the gospel. He takes time to walk the city and recognize the culture and its expressions, not because he believes them to be right, but because they can be used as a bridge to the gospel. A few years ago, I was working for a Christian charity here in Manchester, there were only a couple of us, and we had a season where a number of American churches we were linked to wanted to do mission trips to the UK and I don't know if you've ever been involved in short-term mission they're a pain to organize but they can be a real blessing um, so we decided to have them come and one of the groups we arranged was pretty much all student age from kind of 18 to 25 and they arrived during university exam time so we decided great we've got this resource at a very stressful time of year we're going to send them onto campus to pray for students And what we did was really simple. We didn't say, go out and find people um, to convert to Christianity. Go out and spread the message as hard as possible. We actually just split them into pairs and said, go talk to people and offer to pray for their exams. Don't win them on a spiel. Don't try and do anything complicated. Really simple message. Hey, we're Christians and we'd love to pray for you at this stressful time. By the end of the day, I think there were about 14 to 18 of us. We'd prayed for 211 different people. Only 27 of them had been willing to stick around for a conversation about the gospel, and only six of them took a Bible, and only a few of them we kept in contact with. But we engaged them where they were. I've now jumped to a completely different section. Um, Hey. Bear with. (laughs) So the interesting thing I found was in the debrief at the end of the day, we discussed and realized that people were more willing to accept prayer than most of our American colleagues had kind of anticipated. Sometimes we get a bad rap in America about our engagement with the gospel, and I think they think we're some kind of heathen hinterland that is unopened to the work of the Holy Spirit, which I think does undermine us a little bit. Um, But often, where the gospel conversations came from was the fact that people were so blown away to be engaged in their time of stress and anxiety, that they asked why it was happening, right? So I'm stressed about exams, someone else cares. Someone else wants to hear about that and wants to meet me in it. I'm gonna ask why, I'm gonna engage with that. And that's where almost all of our gospel conversations came from, was that bit after. Why are you saying this? Just like as Paul was in Athens and they said, why are you speaking this stuff in our public square? That led to the declaration of the gospel. Actually engaging with people where they are and in the situations they're in is really important. By caring about those anxieties that they were facing, it allowed us to contextualize the gospel that we're bringing, speaking into that worry and anxiety, explaining that God cares about people going through their exams, and actually that there's something a bit greater than what they get in their exams to look forward to, that yes, their earthly achievements are great, but there is a greater hope than that the gospel got shared from a place of common ground and mutual understanding. I think for me, one of the big lessons is that if you start from a place of being genuinely concerned for the situations of the people you wanna reach, allowing yourself to be moved for them in your spirit, as Paul was, then actually we can engage with people in, on their level and in their culture. And so from this, Paul gets invited to speak to the high council, the Areopagus, the most educated people in society. It says, men of Athens, or he says, men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along you, I saw your many shrines. I think I've misquoted that. Um, And one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. And what I find quite interesting about this passage for me is that he doesn't launch into a religious argument or condemnation. He's found this marker of the common ground. You, you have a temple. Paul is one of the most religious of the Jewish people. He's embedded in law and tradition. He's zealous, or certainly was about maintaining every festival and rite. And he links himself with their clear striving to know God. The fact that they built temples and shrines, the fact they were seeking. But then he points to the fact that actually their striving was incomplete and they knew it. They built this temple to what they didn't know to who they didn't know, the fact that all their other gods were not enough to explain who they were and what they were looking for. So they built a temple that covered it all, right? I love that idea. Okay, we don't know something, so we'll just do a a capsule temple. To the unknown god, to the one we're not sure about, um, I would love that, you know, in an essay or an exam, you could just write, and all the other answers that could be answered at the bottom, and you get all the marks, and it's fantastic. Doesn't quite work like that. These Greeks, with their histories of many gods and idols, could still recognize that something else was out there, and Paul uses that to then build the connection to share the gospel. I think Paul realized that that temple is a reflection of an underlying anxiety and worry that the Greeks were facing. With that mission trip, we didn't start with theology and then speak into situations. We spoke into situations and then brought what we believed. Instead of acknowledging it was about the cult. Yeah, we spoke to it through prayer, right? Um, And just like Paul did, we were willing to speak to people on a level they understand rather than trying to bring our core understanding to them before we built that little layer of connection. So as we speak to engage with the culture around us, the idea of contextualizing the gospel is really important. Um, And I'd probably encourage you to think about the idols, the activities, the things that dominate your life and the lives of those around you and work out where the common ground is, speaking into it then helps us bridge that gap to the gospel. And I believe that that can apply here in Manchester, just as we have students who can speak to students. And that doesn't mean if you're not a student, you can't speak to students, right? But actually, many of us are here are parents. We're coming across other parents. Maybe you have a job in the city centre. You're coming across other workers and other people very similar to you. There is common ground. And then once we find that common ground, I think the next step is to proclaim the gospel with boldness. Acts 17 to 24 says, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples and human hands can't serve his needs. For he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything and he satisfies every need. To proclaim the gospel, Paul starts by making the unknown God known. He speaks to that unknowing and says, actually, there is an answer, a clear and clear, clear answer. The God of heaven and earth who has no needs and gives life and breath to everything. That would have been a bold answer to the empty temple, right? Right. I think that's very important. So when we engage culturally, we have to be willing to point to and clearly proclaim boldly the God who is often misunderstood or ignored. Um, One of the decisions I made last year, I started a new job working for a vast, faceless financial organization, and uh, many of you will have heard of them. Um, and actually, one of the really key things I wanted to do from day one was declare myself to be a Christian, for people to know that and know that was more than something that I did on a Sunday. And again, it wasn't about loudly trying to convert people to Christianity or bringing Jesus into every conversation, but making a conscious effort to define myself first by who I followed and not what I was doing. And then taking the natural opportunities that that spurs to share some of my beliefs. And it, This summer, I was invited to run our graduate and intern induction programs, and we ran a series of sessions exploring how different grads like myself had found their first year at the bank. And for me, that was a really good opportunity to publicly share about my faith. Um, I really enjoyed it. And so I was able to share that at the time, Abby and I were helping to lead our Fallowfield congregation, and we just uh, brought that to an end over the summer. Um, And I was actually able to share how difficult that had been. Over the course of a year, trying to manage helping to lead a congregation with working for a massive organization that has huge demands on your time. And actually trying to explain that in putting your priorities in the right order makes such a difference to who we are and what we do. And at the end of the week, I didn't think much of it, but a guy called Sam came up to me. And he'd been challenged about that idea of priorities and putting his faith in the right place. And Sam was really interesting because he'd taken a gap year after secondary school to work for his home church. So, you know, in many ways, the prototype of what we'd quite like is all our guys, before they go to uni, give us their time for free. We can exploit their labor and build the church on the back of it. Um, you know, not that I have any opinions on that. Um, and actually, once he'd gone to uni after this year, he hadn't been able to settle into a church. He hadn't prioritized finding community in a new place. He'd prioritized studying and partying over actually his relationship with God. We were able to talk a bit, pray, and share some advice on how he could refocus um, for his final year. But honestly, I don't think that conversation would have happened without some boldness in being willing to express who I was in the workplace. And boldness is not the same as arrogance. And I think sometimes as Christians, we need to know where the line is. But it's about confidence in the truth that we carry. The culture around us finds it very easy to misunderstand God and what it means to be a Christian, but we have to remain firm in the true nature of God as the only one who gives life and breath just as Paul did. And as we continue in Acts 17, Paul doesn't just stop at declaring God's nature. In verses 31 and 30, it says, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier time, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him for he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. Paul is very clear, once he's reached that common ground, once he's said who God is, to provide the message of repentance being needed in the place that he's speaking into. He doesn't water it down, but he presents the gospel with urgency. This is where the contextualizing of the gospel for the culture we're in that I spoke about earlier can't slip into becoming like the culture. There's a difference. There's a speaking into it, not becoming it. Our culture shies away from the idea of sin, right? Like that is a foreign word. But as followers of Christ, we are called to be bold in proclaiming the need for all to turn away from sin and towards God. And opportunities are going to come up. Um, I always find it quite interesting when someone says, I pray for opportunities to share the gospel. I think actually pray for boldness to take the opportunities that are right in front of you. God's put people in your life. They're right there. And we have to be careful not to dilute that message of repentance for fear of opposition, or even just nervousness about our own ability to explain things, right? I think we overestimate our own importance in the area of evangelism. We just have to share the reality of what we've been through, who God is, what sin is, and the fact that actually we have hope in Jesus's resurrection. Paul anchors this message to the Athenians in that truth about Jesus being resurrected. I love that. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. Paul is explaining that there isn't just a moment in history where the resurrection happened, but an assurance of justice to come. It's quite an interesting one. We, we know that justice came upon the cross, and we know there's a greater justice to reconcile everything that is going to come as well. Um, one of the tensions in our, in our faith, actually, to understand that and to, to know that. And I don't think it's any, ever something we will fully get to know until we stand before God in heaven, and then we probably won't care because we'll be too busy worshipping and spending time in his presence. But what there is is a transformative power in knowing about the resurrection, a transformative power that stems from that very act of resurrection. The same power that raised Christ from the grave assures us of our standing before God, providing not just hope but a guarantee. Proclaiming the gospel with boldness, therefore, isn't about our personal eloquence, but the power of the message that we're carrying. We bring the message that God is just, and actually we deserve to be judged, but through Christ we can face that with confidence. As I said, proclaiming the gospel means making that unknown God known, calling people to repentance, and anchoring that message in the resurrection. Not just a nice to have, but a declaration with internal consequence. So we're proclaiming the gospel by contextualizing it, by being bold about it, but we're going to come across challenges and difficulties. In Acts 17, um, in verse 18, Paul is facing some opposition. It says, when he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas that he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Now, one of the reasons we get stuck as Christians, I think, is because when we first get excited about faith, and maybe people have had this at different points where they've been more excited, less excited, we share it quite easily because we're excited because something has changed. I know when I first became a Christian, there was a huge wave of sharing it with people. And then what happens is we start to face the scoffers, the mockers, the people who just aren't engaged. I actually find the people who are deeply opposed are less annoying than the people who are apathetic, um, but that's just me. And that begins to wear at us, I think, and we begin to think, oh, I've tried it with these people, I've shared it with these people, maybe, maybe I'll just wait, or maybe there'll be a better opportunity. And when we were offering to pray on campus, I distinctly remember every single type of reaction we got. We got some people who, great, interested, accepting, wanting prayer. We got the scoffers and the derision. We got the eye rolls. We got the rejection. And every time I've shared my faith since then, some form of that has happened, right? There's always opposition. It's not a sign of failure of us or the message, but just a reality of what we're going to face. And how did Paul handle it? Well, he faced it regularly. And he always stood firm in his beliefs. He declared the unchanging message of the gospel in the midst of a changing world and a changing culture. And he always offered those who mocked him the opportunity to turn and believe. All of those that came to him in opposition, he shared the gospel with them, knowing the consequence that might have on his life. They heard it, and then they chose to mock and deride we have to give people an opportunity to hear it. And he says, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. He's standing in a hall of people, some of whom are mocking and deriding him, and saying, actually, no, your time of ignorance is over because the gospel is here, and this is your opportunity to repent and turn. Our culture is redefining truth, morality, spirituality, um, I don't know about you, but I don't know what our culture defines to be good anymore. I think that is changing, and it changes often. It doesn't, we don't know what it means to be inclusive. We don't know what it means to do all of these different things because the definitions are changing. But the message that we bring in the gospel, the truth that we have in the gospel, is unchanging and constant. When we face the opposition, we actually have the one thing they don't have, certainty and truth. And that's something that has brought me a lot of comfort in difficult times, and I hope brings you a lot of comfort. We stand on the firm foundations of God's word. And just as Paul received that mockery, he saw many, many successes. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in content, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some of them joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Paul was facing opposition, and he still spoke the gospel, and people still responded to the gospel. That's what we've got to do. Whatever situation we're in, whatever difficulty we're facing, if we speak the gospel, the power of the gospel is such that people will respond to it. We're going to face the opposition But cultural challenges, cultural opposition doesn't undermine the effectiveness of the gospel. It reveals why it's needed, right? Like the mockery and the scorn and the derision shows us exactly why Jesus is needed in that situation. It should be an encouragement, as difficult as it is. And we know many of our friends and family linked to this church and others who are really struggling in places where it isn't mockery and scorn and derision. It's death and pain and struggling. But actually the situations that come out of that are a bold proclamation of the gospel that has led to millions being saved. I think about the Iranian church, where they estimate there could be three, four, five million Christians in Iran, in underground churches, many of whom have had to flee, hide their faith, but they still share, they still find ways of sharing, and they have a lot more opposition than we face in our modern society. And yet the gospel works the same way, to transform hearts and speak into people's lives. I know that. When I became a Christian, I was definitely a know-it-all young teenager who didn't believe any of it. Um, And to be honest, if if my young 13-year-old self saw myself now, I think I would probably have myself committed. You know, I wasn't a big believer that it made sense or that it was logical. But actually, that very encounter with Christians who were willing to share the gospel, willing to invite me into their life, allowed me to hear about this transformation thing that is the gospel, about the resurrection and life of Jesus Christ. Actually, facing opposition is about trust. It's about trusting that God is who he says he is, that the Holy Spirit is working among you, and that Jesus is not just your saviour, but a saviour for other people. It's not about solving the opposition, because you're not going to do it. Paul got to see Dionysus, a prominent Greek, Demaris, and many others within the city saved knowing that actually, despite the opposition he'd faced, the message he'd brought, the partnership he'd had with the gospel, had resulted in people being saved and welcomed into God's family. And I don't know about you, but I would like to reach that point in my life, to reach the end of my life, knowing that because of boldness and faith, there are people in God's family who have heard the gospel, that wouldn't have if we hadn't taken that opportunity. Now we all know that God will do things (laughs) to work things for his glory, but we have a part to play in actually welcoming people into our family. Closed, I'm gonna challenge you to reimagine that street scene of Manchester that I spoke about at the beginning of the sermon. People doing their Christmas shopping, buying their lunch, raising donations, others struggling to make ends meet, rushing to see their friends, different people with different lives, with different goals and priorities. And into that, we in this city have the opportunity to bring the good news of Jesus, Born, crucified, and raised. Allow your mind to wander a bit. Start to focus in on your everyday life. What are your activities? Who do you come into contact with? Have those people had the opportunity to hear the good news? Maybe put some names into your mind that you'd like to share with. Picture their face. Think about where God has given you that common ground with them to open a conversation maybe you do have that same job maybe you do have children maybe you have similar struggles and anxieties what would it mean in your context to speak to those people about the gospel where does it start what would it mean to boldly proclaim it to them and do you have confidence that the holy spirit is bigger than anything they could say or do as you do so the joy Thanks for listening. Christchurch Manchester is one church that meets in various locations across Greater Manchester. To explore this sermon or learn more about our church, please navigate to the links provided in this podcast description. From there, you can connect with us on social media. And you're welcome to check out the Music links featured in this episode from our very own musicians. You can also discover current events and information about where we meet on Sundays and various groups or community projects that you can join in with. If you're interested in knowing more about us or wish to join us for one of our meetings, please reach out. Simply drop us an email at hello at ccn.org.uk. We look forward to connecting with you.